Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. <clears throat> this is the final episode of the Randolph Carter Chronicles. I hope you've been enjoying this little biography that's been going throughout the year. Next month, we'll be doing the final Karnacki story of the year, and that will be wrapped as well. Other than that, if you're an up-and-coming writer of weird fiction and you would like your work to be featured on the show, I would love to consider it. Please drop me a line at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities, my debut collection of weird fiction, is available. Please feel free to pick yourself up a copy. It's really good, and I'm really proud of it, and I know you'll love it. I've been spending time this November doing Nashosto Remo, and I've gotten three stories done for a new collection. That makes a total of eight in various stages of editing. I would like to keep up the pace, 700 to 1,000 words a day, once November ends, so I just keep writing, but we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for listening, and on with the show. Four. What I read in the Black Book formed a fiendishly apt preparation for the news items and closer events which began to force themselves upon me in the spring of 1932. I can scarcely recall just when the increasingly frequent reports of police action against the odd and fantastical religious cults in the Orient and elsewhere commenced to impress me, but by May or June I realized that there was, all over the world, a surprising and unwanted burst of activity on the part of bizarre, furtive, and esoteric mystical organizations ordinarily quiescent and seldom heard from. It is not likely that I would have connected these reports with either the hints of von Junst or the popular furor over the mummy and cylinder in the museum, but for certain significant syllables and persistent resemblances, sensationally dwelt upon by the press, in the rites and speeches of the various secret celebrants brought to public attention. As it was, I could not help remarking with disquiet the frequent recurrence of a name, in various corrupt forms, which seemed to constitute a focal point of all the cult worship, and which was obviously regarded with a singular mixture of reverence and terror. Some of the forms quoted were Gitanta, Tanota, Tantha, Gitan, and Ktanta, and it did not require the suggestions of my now numerous occultist correspondents to make me see in these variants a hideous and suggestive kinship to the monstrous name rendered by von Junst as Gatanathoa. There were other disquieting features, too. Again and again, the reports cited vague, awestruck references to a true scroll, something on which tremendous consequences seemed to hinge, and which was mentioned as being in the custody of a certain Negab, whoever and whatever he might be. Likewise, there was an insistent repetition of a name which sounded like Tog, Tyok, Yog, Zob, or Yob, and which my more and more excited consciousness involuntarily linked with the name of the hapless heretic Tiog, as given in the Black Book. This name was usually uttered in connection with such cryptical phrases as, It is none other than he, he have looked upon its face, he knows all, though he can neither see nor feel, he has brought the memory down through the aeons, the true scroll will release him, Nagob has the true scroll. He can tell where to find it. 
something very queer was undoubtedly in the air, and I did not wonder when my occultist correspondence, as well as these sensational Sunday papers, began to connect the new abnormal stirrings with the legends of Moo on the one hand, and with the frightful mummy's recent exploitation on the other hand. The widespread articles in the first wave of press publicity, with their insistent linkage of the mummy, cylinder, and scroll with the tale in the black book, and their crazily fantastic speculations about the whole matter, might very well have roused the latent fanaticism in hundreds of those furtive groups of exotic devotees with which our complex world abounds. Nor did the papers cease adding fuel to the flames, for the stories on the cult stirrings were even wilder than the earlier series of yarns. As the summer drew on, attendants noticed a curious new element among the throngs of visitors which, after a lull following the first burst of publicity, were again drawn to the museum by the second furor. More and more frequently there were persons of strange and exotic aspect, swarthy Asiatics, long-haired nondescripts, and bearded brown men who seemed unused to European clothes, who would invariably inquire for the Hall of Mummies and would subsequently be found staring at the hideous Pacific specimen in a veritable ecstasy of fascination. Some quiet, sinister undercurrent in this flood of eccentric foreigners seemed to impress all the guards, and I myself was far from undisturbed. I could not help thinking of the prevailing cult stirrings among just such exotics as these, and the connection of those stirrings with myths all too close to the frightful mummy and its cylinder scroll. At times I was half-tempted to withdraw the mummy from exhibition, especially when an attendant told me that he had several times glimpsed strangers making odd obeisances before it, and had overheard sing-song mutterings which sounded like chants or rituals addressed to it at hours when the visiting throngs were somewhat thinned. One of the guards acquired a queer, nervous hallucination about the petrified horror in the lone glass case, alleging that he could see from day to day certain vague, subtle, and infinitely slight changes in the frantic flexion of the bony claws and in the fear-crazed expression of the leathery face. He could not get rid of the loathsome idea that those horrible, bulging eyes were about to pop suddenly open. It was early in September when the curious crowds had lessened and the Hall of Mummies was sometimes vacant that the attempt to get at the mummy by cutting the glass of its case was made. The culprit, a swarthy Polynesian, was spied in time by a guard and was overpowered before any damage occurred. Upon investigation, the fellow turned out to be an Hawaiian notorious for his activity in certain underground religious cults and having a considerable police record in connection with abnormal and inhuman rites and sacrifices. Some of the papers found in his room were highly puzzled and disturbing, including many sheets covered with hieroglyphs closely resembling those on the scroll at the museum and in the Black Book of von Junst, but regarding these things he could not be prevailed upon to speak. Scarcely a week after this incident, another attempt to get at the mummy, this time by tampering with the lock of his case, resulted in a second arrest. The offender, a Singalese, had as long and unsavory a record of loathsome cult activities as the Hawaiian had possessed, and displayed a kindred unwillingness to talk to the police. What made this case doubly and darkly interesting was that a guard had noticed this man several times before and had heard him addressing to the mummy a peculiar chant containing unmistakable repetitions of the word Tiag. As a result of this affair, I doubled the guards in the Hall of Mummies and ordered them, and ordered them never to leave the now notorious specimen out of sight even for a moment. As may well be imagined, 
The press made much of these two incidents, reviewing its talk of primal and fabulous moo, and claiming boldly that the hideous mummy was none other than the daring heretic Tiag, petrified by something he had seen in the pre-human citadel he had invaded and preserved intact through 175,000 years of our planet's turbulent history. That the strange devotees represented cults descended from Mu, and that they were worshipping the mummy, or perhaps even seeking to awaken it to life by spells and incantations, was emphasized and reiterated in the most sensational fashion. Writers exploited the insistence of the old legends that the brain of Gatanathoa's petrified victims remained conscious and unaffected, a point which served as a basis for the wildest and most improbable speculations. The mention of a true scroll also received due attention, it being the prevailing popular theory that Tiag's stolen charm against Gatanathoa was somewhere in existence, and that cult members were trying to bring it into contact with Tiag himself for some purpose of their own. One result of this exploitation was that a third wave of gaping visitors began flooding the museum and staring at the hellish mummy which served as a nucleus for the whole strange and disturbing affair. It was among this wave of spectators, many of whom made repeated visits, that talk of the mummy's vaguely changing aspect first began to be widespread. I suppose, despite the disturbing notion of the nervous guard some months before, that the museum's personnel was too well used to the constant sight of odd shapes to pay close attention to details. In any case, it was the excited whisper of visitors which at length aroused the guards to the subtle mutation which was apparently in progress. Almost simultaneously, the press got hold of it, with blatant results which can well be imagined. Naturally, I gave the matter my most careful observation, and by the middle of October decided that a definite disintegration of the mummy was underway. Through some chemical or physical influence in the air, the half-stony, half-leathery fibers seemed to be gradually relaxing, causing distinct variations in the angles of the limbs and in certain details of the fear-twisted facial expression. After a half-century of perfect preservation, this was a highly disconcerting development, and I had the museum's taxidermist, Dr. Moore, go carefully over the gruesome object several times. He reported a general relaxation and softening, and gave the thing two or three astringent sprayings, but did not dare to attempt anything drastic, lest there be a sudden crumbling and accelerated decay. The effect of all this upon the gaping crowds was curious. Heretofore, each new sensation sprung by the press had brought fresh waves of staring and whispering visitors, but now, though the papers blathered endlessly about the mummy's changes, the public seemed to have acquired a definite sense of fear, which outranked even its morbid curiosity. People seemed to feel that a sinister aura hovered over the museum, and from a high peak the attendance fell to a level distinctly below normal. This lessened attendance gave added prominence to the stream of freakish foreigners who continued to infest the place, and whose numbers seemed in no way diminished. On November 18th, a Peruvian of Indian blood suffered a strange hysterical or epileptic seizure in front of the mummy, afterward shrieking from his hospital cot, It tried to open its eyes! It tried to open its eyes! The og tried to open his eyes and stared at me! I was by this time on the point of removing the object from exhibition, but permitted myself to be overruled at a meeting of our very conservative directors. However, I could see that the museum was beginning to acquire an unholy reputation in its austere and quiet neighborhood. After this incident, I gave instructions that no one be allowed to pause before the monster-specific relic for more than a few minutes at a time. It was on November 24th, 
after the museum's five o'clock closing, that one of the guards noticed a minute opening of the mummy's eyes. The phenomenon was very slight, nothing but a thin crescent of cornea being visible in either eye, but it was nonetheless of the highest interest. Dr. Moore, having been summoned hastily, was about to study the exposed bits of eyeball with a magnifier when his handling of the mummy caused the leathery lids to fall tightly shut again. All gentle efforts to open them failed, and the taxidermist did not dare to apply drastic measures. When he notified me of all this by telephone, I felt a sense of mounting dread hard to reconcile with the apparently simple event concerned. For a moment I could share the popular impression that some evil amorphous blight from unplumbed deeps of time and space hung murkily and menacingly over the museum. Two nights later, a sullen Filipino was trying to secrete himself in the museum at closing time. Arrested and taken to the station, he refused even to give his name and was detained as a suspicious person. Meanwhile, the strict surveillance of the mummy seemed to discourage the odd hordes of visitors from haunting it. At least, the number of exotic visitors distinctly fell off after the enforcement of the move-along order. It was during the early morning hours of Thursday, December 1st, that a terrible climax developed. At about one o'clock, horrible screams of mortal fright and agony were heard issuing from the museum, and a series of frantic telephone calls from neighbors brought to the scene quickly and simultaneously a squad of police and several museum officials, including myself. Some of the policemen surrounded the building, while others, with the officials, cautiously entered. In the main corridor, we found the night watchman strangled to death, a bit of East Indian hemp still knotted around his neck, and realized that, despite all precautions, some darkly evil intruder or intruders had gained access to the place. Now, however, a tomb-like silence enfolded everything, and we almost feared to advance upstairs to the fateful wing where we knew the core of the trouble must lurk. We felt a bit more steadied after flooding the building with light from the central switches in the corridor, and finally crept reluctantly up the curving staircase and through a lofty archway to the Hall of Mummies. 5. It is from this point onward that reports of the hideous case have been censored, for we have all agreed that no good can be accomplished by a public knowledge of those terrestrial conditions implied by the further developments. I have said that we flooded the whole building with light before our ascent. Now, beneath the beams that beat down on the glistening cases and their gruesome contents, we saw outspread a mute horror whose baffling details testified to happenings utterly beyond our comprehension. There were two intruders who we afterward agreed must have hidden in the building before closing time, but they would never be executed for the watchman's murder. They had already paid the penalty. One was a Burmese and the other a Fiji Islander, both known to the police for their share in frightful and repulsive cult activities. They were dead, and the more we examined them, the more utterly monstrous and unnameable we felt their manner of death to be. On both faces was a more wholly frantic and inhuman look of fright than even the oldest policeman had ever seen before, yet in the state of the two bodies there were vast and significant differences. The Burmese lay collapsed close to the nameless mummy's case from which a square of glass had been neatly cut. In his right hand was a scroll of bluish membrane which I at once saw was covered with grayish hieroglyphs, almost a duplicate of the scroll in the strange cylinder in the library downstairs, though later study brought out subtle differences. There was no mark of violence on the body, 
and in view of the desperate, agonized expression on the twisted faces, we could only conclude that the man died of sheer fright. It was the closely adjacent Fijian, though, that gave us the profoundest shock. One of the policemen was the first to feel of him, and the cry of fright he emitted added another shudder to that neighborhood's night of terror. We ought to have known from the lethal grayness of the once black, fear-twisted face and of the bony hands, one of them still clutched an electric torch, that something was hideously wrong, yet every one of us was unprepared for what that officer's hesitant touch disclosed. Even now I can think of it only with a paroxysm of dread and repulsion. To be brief, the hapless invader, who less than an hour before had been a sturdy living Melanesian bent on unknown evils, was now a rigid, ash-gray figure of stony, leathery petrification. In every respect, identical with the crouching, aeon-old blasphemy in the violated glass case. Yet that was not the worst. Crowning all other horrors, and indeed seizing our shocked attention before we turned to the bodies on the floor, was the state of the frightful mummy. No longer could its changes be called vague and subtle, for it had now made radical shifts of posture. It had sagged and slumped with a curious loss of rigidity. Its bony claws had sunk until they no longer even partly covered its leathery, fear-crazed face, and... God help us! Its hellish, bulging eyes had popped wide open and seemed to be staring directly at the two intruders who had died of fright or worse. That ghastly, dead fish stare was hideously mesmerizing, and it haunted us all the time we were examining the bodies of the invaders. Its effect on our nerves was damnably queer, for we somehow felt a curious rigidity creeping over us and hampering our simplest emotions. A rigidity which later vanished very oddly when we passed the hieroglyphed scroll around for inspection. Every now and then I felt my gaze drawn irresistibly toward those horrible, bulging eyes in the case, and when I returned to studying them after viewing the bodies, I thought I detected something very singular about the glassy surface of the dark and marvelously well-preserved pupils. The more I looked, the more fascinated I became, and at last I went down to the office, despite that strange stiffness in my limbs, and brought up a strong multiple magnifying glass. With this, I commenced a very close and careful survey of the fishy pupils, while the others crowded expectantly around. I had always been rather skeptical of the theory that scenes and objects become photographed on the retina of the eye in cases of death or coma, yet no sooner did I look through the lens than I realized the presence of some sort of image other than the room's reflection in the glassy, bulging optics of this nameless spawn of the aeons. Certainly there was a dimly outlined scene on the age-old retinal surface, and I could not doubt that it formed the last thing on which those eyes had looked in life countless millennia ago. It seemed to be steadily fading, and I fumbled with the magnifier in order to shift another lens into place, yet it must have been accurate and clear-cut, even if infinitesimally small, when, in response to some evil spell or act connected with their visit, it had confronted those intruders who were frightened to death. With the extra lens, I could make out many details formerly invisible, and the odd group around me hung on the flood of words with which I tried to tell what I saw. For here, in the year 1932, 
a man in the city of Boston was looking on something which belonged to an unknown and utterly alien world. A world that vanished from existence and normal memory aeons ago. There was a vast room, a chamber of cyclopean masonry, and I seemed to be viewing it from one of its corners. On the walls were carvings so hideous that even in this imperfect image their stark blasphemousness and bestiality sickened me. I could not believe that the carvers of these things were human, or that they had ever seen human beings when they shaped the frightful outlines which leered at the beholder. In the center of the chamber was a colossal trapdoor of stone pushed upward to permit the emergence of some object from below. The object should have been clearly visible, indeed must have been when the eyes first opened before the fear-stricken intruders, though under my lenses it was merely a monstrous blur. As it happened, I was studying the right eye only when I brought the extra magnification into play. A moment later, I wished fervently that my search had ended there. As it was, however, the zeal of discovery and revelation was upon me, and I shifted my powerful lenses to the mummy's left eye in the hope of finding the image less faded on that retina. My hands, trembling with excitement and unnaturally stiff from some obscure influence, were slow in bringing the magnifier into focus, but a moment later I realized that the image was less faded than in the other eye. I saw, in a morbid flash of half-distinctness, the insufferable thing which was welling up through the prodigious trapdoor in that cyclopean, immemorially archaic crypt of a lost world, and fell fainting with an inarticulate shriek of which I am not even ashamed. By the time I revived, there was no distinct image of anything in either eye of the monstrous mummy. Sergeant Keefe of the police looked with my glass, for I could not bring myself to face that abnormal entity again, and I thanked all the powers of the cosmos that I had not looked earlier than I did. It took all my resolution and a great deal of solicitation to make me relate what I had glimpsed in the hideous moment of revelation. Indeed, I could not speak till we had all adjourned to the office below, out of sight of that demoniac thing which could not be. For I had begun to harbor the most terrible and fantastic notions about the mummy and its glassy, bulging eyes, that it had a kind of hellish consciousness, seeing all that occurred before it and trying vainly to communicate some frightful message from the gulfs of time. That meant madness. But at last I thought I might be better off if I told what I had half seen. After all... It was not a long thing to tell. Oozing and surging up out of that yawning trapdoor in the Cyclopean crypt, I had glimpsed such an unbelievable behemothic monstrosity that I could not doubt the power of its original to kill with its mere sight. Even now I cannot begin to suggest it with any words at my command. I might call it gigantic, tentacled, proboscidean, octopus-eyed, semi-amorphous, plastic, partly squamous and partly rugose. Ugh. But nothing, I could say, could even adumbrate the loathsome, unholy, non-human, extragalactic horror and hatefulness and unutterable evil of that forbidden spawn of black chaos and illimitable night. As I write these words, the associated mental image causes me to lean back, faint and nauseated. As I told of the sight to the men around me in the office, I had to fight to preserve the consciousness I had regained. Nor were my hearers much less moved. Not a man spoke above a whisper for a full quarter hour, and there were odd, half-furtive references to the frightful lore in the black book, 
to the recent newspaper tales of cult stirrings, and to the sinister events in the museum. Gatanathoa, even its smallest perfect image could petrify. Tiag, the false scroll, he never came back. The true scroll, which could fully or partly undo the petrification, did it survive? The hellish cults, the phrases overheard, it is none other than he, he had looked upon its face, he knows all, though he can neither see nor feel. He had brought the memory down through the aeons. The true scroll will release him. Nagob has the true scroll. He can tell where to find it. Only the healing grayness of the dawn brought us back to sanity. A sanity which made of that glimpse of mine a closed topic, something not to be explained or thought of again. We gave out only partial reports to the press, and later on cooperated with the papers in making other suppressions. For example, when the autopsy showed the brain and several other internal organs of the petrified Fijian to be fresh and unpetrified, though hermetically sealed by the petrification of the exterior flesh, an anomaly about which physicians are still guardedly and bewilderedly debating, we did not wish a furor to be started. We knew too well what the yellow journals, remembering what was said of the intact-brained and still-conscious state of Gatanathoa's stony, leathery victims, would make of this detail. As matters stood, they pointed out that the man who had held the hieroglyphed scroll, and who had evidently thrust it at the mummy through the opening in the case, was not petrified, while the man who had not held it was. When they demanded that we make certain experiments, applying the scroll both to the stony, leathery body of the Fijian and to the mummy itself, we indulgently refused to abet such superstitious notions. Of course, the mummy was withdrawn from public view and transferred to the museum laboratory awaiting a really scientific examination before some suitable medical authority. Remembering past events, we kept it under a strict guard, but even so, an attempt was made to enter the museum at 2.25 a.m. on December 5th. Prompt working of the burglar alarm frustrated the design, though unfortunately the criminal or criminals escaped. That no hint of anything further ever reached the public, I am profoundly thankful. I wish, devoutly, there were nothing more to tell. There will, of course, be leaks, and if anything happens to me, I do not know what my executors will do with this manuscript. But at least the case will not be painfully fresh in the multitude's memory when the revelation comes. Besides, no one will believe the facts when they are finally told. That is the curious thing about the multitude. When their yellow press makes hints, they're ready to swallow anything. But when a stupendous and abnormal revelation is actually made, they laugh it aside as a lie. For the sake of general sanity, it is probably better so. I have said that a scientific examination of the frightful mummy was planned. This took place on December 8th exactly a week after the hideous culmination of events, and was conducted by the eminent Dr. William Minot in conjunction with Wentworth Moore, S.C.D., taxidermist of the museum. Dr. Minot had witnessed the autopsy of the oddly petrified Fijian the week before. There were also present Messrs. Lawrence Cabot and Dudley Saltonstall of the museum's trustees, Drs. Mason, Wells, and Carver of the museum staff, two representatives of the press, and myself. During the week, the condition of the hideous specimen had not visibly changed, though some relaxation of its fibers caused the position of the glassy, open eyes to shift slightly from time to time. All of the staff dreaded to look at the thing, 
for its suggestion of quiet, conscious watching had become intolerable, and it was only with an effort that I could bring myself to attend the examination. Dr. Minot arrived shortly after 1 p.m. and within a few minutes began his survey of the mummy. Considerable disintegration took place under his hands, and in view of this, and of what we told him concerning the gradual relaxation of the specimen since the 1st of October, he decided that a thorough dissection ought to be made before the substance was further impaired. The proper instruments being present in the laboratory equipment, he began at once exclaiming aloud at the odd fibrous nature of the gray mummified substance. But his exclamation was still louder when he made the first deep incision, for out of that cut there slowly trickled a thick crimson stream whose nature, despite the infinite ages dividing this hellish mummy's lifetime from the present, was utterly unmistakable. A few more deft strokes revealed various organs in astonishing degrees of non-petrified preservation, all indeed being intact except where injuries to the petrified exterior had brought about malformation or destruction. The resemblance of this condition to that found in the fright-killed Fiji Islander was so strong that the eminent physician gasped in bewilderment. The perfection of those ghastly bulging eyes was uncanny, and their exact state with respect to petrification was very difficult to determine. At 3.30 p.m., the brain case was opened, and ten minutes later our stunned group took an oath of secrecy which only such guarded documents as this manuscript will ever modify. Even the two reporters were glad to confirm the silence, for the opening had revealed a pulsing, living brain. And that is the end of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. A few words about that. A review came in the other day with some very kind words about the show, but also addressing how the listener thought I should stop kicking all the money back into the show and take some for myself in order to be compensated for my work. That was something I wrestled long and hard with when deciding whether to start a Patreon or not. Mentally, I know I should be compensated, but psychologically, I can't do that for a couple of reasons. The first is that I have a massive inferiority complex, and coupled with my imposter syndrome, I would feel really bad and really guilty for taking money for myself. Secondly, the money is used to pay the hosting fees, and that's a more than $100 payment I don't have to worry about coming out of our bank account. It helped buy a new microphone and various studio improvements, and will help purchase more in the future. The microphone and studio improvements I've used for other projects, so it's not exclusively for the show, just primarily. So... From a certain point of view, I do get a benefit out of it, just not directly. I do have a specific number in mind, over which I will pay a little bit to myself. I am not currently anywhere near that number, and honestly, I don't think I will ever get to it. I'm just not a big enough show, and I know finances can be gross. Believe me, I know. Anyway, thank you Ambervale, Steve Meyer, and Lucas Nicholson for your support. I very much appreciate it. Please go and get vaccinated for whatever you're available for. If you see a bigot out and doing a bigotry, make their life just really, really uncomfortable. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.